Hello and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for 2018. My name is Michael Laminato and this is Round 2, the Bahrain Grand Prix. If Ferrari and Sebastian Vettel were lucky to win the Australian Grand Prix two weeks ago, this weekend at Sakir, the 25 points were hard-earned, with Vettel beating Valtteri Bottas to the line by less than a second. But did Mercedes miss a trick by not applying more pressure earlier in the race? Should Ferrari consider itself lucky a second time? To help make sense of a manic Bahrain Grand Prix, I'm joined by BBC F1 commentator Jack Nichols. Jack, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, just about recovered after... Last night's craziness, but uh, yeah, I'm good. It's hard to believe that only two weeks ago, it seemed like F1 was in the grip of some kind of crisis where there'd be no overtaking ever again and a number of changes would have to be made before we had racing back. Uh, How much does this show just how, I suppose, prone to that kind of overreaction Formula One can be? Uh, I think it goes both ways. On the one hand, yeah, absolutely. Massive overreaction in Melbourne. It's always been difficult to overtake in Melbourne. It's always difficult to overtake on a street circuit. It's always difficult to overtake in Formula One. You know, those are just the facts. And sometimes they combine together to give us a Grand Prix like in Melbourne. But for me, I mean, it's not really about overtake. I really enjoyed watching Hamilton chase down Vettel in the closing stages. Even if he didn't manage to overtake, I found that still very exciting. Uh, And then on the flip side in Bahrain, a lot of it came from the different tyre strategies. I mean, what Bahrain gave us is that is always what these Pirelli races were meant to give us you know the fact that you could do legitimate different strategies that would work out the problem is that whether it's Pirelli's fault whether it's just the nature of everyone in F1 being very clever they always tend to work out the same because every team goes well this is the fast way to do it computer says this off we go but Bahrain I think because of its a very high grip circuit you get a lot of degradation there on the tires and as a result it kind of mixes it up a little bit more it was a two-stopper and there were plenty of options Bahrain especially and whether it's a coincidence or not uh, I suppose maybe we'll never know or maybe someone will know uh, since it became a night race has become far more interesting than it was uh, characterized in the years prior to that it's still at this early part of the season though where you know you don't get a consistent run we can't exactly tell the form of, of, of all of the order particularly the front runners we know that Red Bull Racing had two retirements here so it seems like we may never know how they shape up in yeah. comparison to Ferrari and Mercedes but were you surprised how again in comparison to Mel and how close that fight at the front was. I mean, few people would have expected that Ferrari would have been able to take pole here. That It was the qualifying pace that was really surprising for Ferrari. I mean, really, really surprising. When you were looking at the free practice times and they were mm-hmm. uh, something like half a second clear, weren't they, in the second practice session on Friday, there was talk of, oh, well, they, they've upped their engine mode and Mercedes didn't run their full power engine mode. But then it, it wasn't too dissimilar a gap on, you know, Mercedes closed in a little bit in actual qualifying but Ferrari were the fastest car over one lap and I don't think I was I was one of the more (laughs) positive folk that thought it would be close Uh, some people were saying oh no Melbourne's shown that Mercedes are dominant and it's going to be the worst season in F1 ever (laughs) but I was a bit more optimistic than that but even I wasn't optimistic enough to think that 
Ferrari would lock out the front row on on pure pace. It's such a uh, well-used phrase, the worst season in F1 ever. I like how often <laughs> we do hear that. It's What's great is that at a minimum, whether or not this will persist into becoming a long-term close fight, we seem to have again between Ferrari and Mercedes cars that have different strengths, at very minimum in terms of their use of the tyres. And one of the things we've seen from Mercedes in the last couple of years was that the harder the tyre, the better they seem to perform. So in some respects... Given that we had the medium soft and super soft here and that Hamilton was able to start on the soft, it probably wasn't the disadvantage we expected, Hamilton starting ninth and, and not getting pole in the first place. They always had a little bit of forward momentum in that regard, I think. Yeah, obviously Hamilton's cause was massively aided by Red Bull's self-destruction because that was obviously two places mm-hmm. that he sort of got for free. Um, and the other interesting, when you look back at it now, hindsight's wonderful because... Presumably, Mercedes would have known coming into this Grand Prix that they mo- that they had a problem with the gearbox and most likely would have to change it and most likely would take a five-place grid penalty. That didn't emerge until um, Friday night, wasn't it, when they actually changed the gearbox in preparation for qualifying. But I remember being a little bit confused on Friday because the medium tyre, I don't think anyone used it in the right. Grand Prix this time last year. And everybody thought, well... You know, Pirelli have brought. You know, the, Pirelli have you know created this hundred million tires from the super soft to the hyper hard and all. Of, and I think it's, I think it's stupid, because most of the time you've only ended up with, you have the two fastest tires and that's it. It's it's been very rare that we've seen all three tires really used in the race by front runners. And so Hamilton was going round and round on these medium tires on Friday. And I had no idea why he was doing it, and we weren't really sure why he was doing it. But now you look back, if they knew they had a five-place grid penalty, you know, on Friday, then, well, that's why, isn't it? This was the plan all along. And so uh, it was good that they were able to to do that run on the medium tyres, because no one else really managed to get much running out of the out of the mediums. It was, like I say, assumed that you wouldn't even bother with mm-hmm. the mediums. Maybe do your install lap on the mediums and... If you needed to push the car to the Weybridge, stick it on the mediums, because that's all they were good for. It is interesting, yes, that he did a lot of running on that. And both Mercedes cars, it has to be said, in particular Hamilton, which I suppose is not necessarily surprising. We can talk a bit about Hamilton versus Bottas a little bit later. But they got a, a almost incredible amount of pace out of the medium compound. I think Hamilton's fastest, and granted fuel loads play a, a factor in this because it was his second stint, but his fastest lap on the mediums was faster than any lap Vettel set on either of the two softer tyres. Yeah. How much of a specialty is this going to be? I mean, we talk about those harder compound tyres last year hardly ever being used. Could this be that defining trick that Mercedes can use to get it over the line in trickier situations this season? I think it's going to be a big help, that's that's for sure. But also whether that's the just the outright pace of the Mercedes in race trim compared to Ferrari, mm-hmm. you know. Because I think the, the race pace that we saw from Mercedes was not dissimilar to what you would have expected after Melbourne. Bottas mm-hmm. sort of lapping around about the same as... Vettel and Raikkonen in that opening stint he was able to close in a bit towards the end and then if you sort of make the assumption which I do that Hamilton has a little bit more pace in hand over over Bottas you'd expect then Hamilton to be the fastest guy on the track and also the the difference between the tyres wasn't that big this weekend Mm. I think it was only the the softs to the super softs only seemed to give you two or three tenths of a second you know the the 
Um, I remember in free practice too when they all changed onto the super softs to do their to do their flying qualifying runs. It it wasn't actually that much of a step forward in pace for for either for for any of the cars apart from Raikkonen, but I think he'd had a rubbish um, run on the soft. So being quick on the mediums was a surprise undoubtedly, but when you sort of break it down and think, well, if Hamilton has a bit of a pace advantage on Vettel and the the, the difference between the two tyres isn't that great. Then it's then it's almost not too surprising. Mm, almost edging back towards that worst season in F1 history uh, zone <laughs> yes, again. Exactly. But we, hopefully we can fend that off for a little while. Let's go actually before we get into sort of all the the breakdown of exactly how that win was decided to a team that probably feels like it's having the worst season in F1 history, which is Red Bull Racing. Two retirements didn't factor at all in the Grand Prix, but for the second week in the row. Uh, Christian Horner has said that he really feels like the car would be very quick if it could finish the race in a, in a place where it could express it. Did you ever get the sense this weekend, granted they had about five laps between them, I think, in the race, that this could have been uh, the race where Red Bull really re-entered that championship fight after all these years? Well, uh, I think they're still a li- I think they're still the third fastest car. I think they're still a little way behind, but the gap is coming down. Ricardo qualified... Um, fifth didn't he and he was only I think the top I think he was only a couple of tenths off pole I think he was pretty close Mm -hmm. uh, about a quarter of a second maybe off pole position so they were there or thereabouts then and their race pace looked very strong in Friday so well the thing is we just don't know that's that's the frustrating thing is we have seen no evidence of how fast Red Bull are this year because even in and and so much of it is their own making you know Verstappen I don't want to say he was at fault for his incident with Hamilton because I don't think he did anything outrageous, Mm. but he only has himself to blame, if you see what I mean. It wasn't necessarily his fault, but he put himself in the position where that contact could have happened and that wiped out his race. But even then, he was starting down in 15th because he binned it in the wall and he claims that he got an extra 150 horsepower all of a sudden, which is, you know, quite possible. But Mm. Christian Horner said it was a mistake. So, you know, whichever way that goes... Ricardo in Melbourne got that his grid penalty through his own fault for not slowing under red flag. So there's just errors everywhere littered throughout the Red Bull team. And then Max missed all of Friday morning practice because the car just shut down on him. They couldn't really fire up Daniel Ricardo's car on Friday practice. Took him a couple of goes to get him out. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's a scruffy start to the season from every element at Red Bull, you know, with Verstappen and Verstappen spinning in Melbourne as well. You know, it's, mm. just, it's just been littered with errors everywhere in the team. Coming over uh, all Ferrari 2016 with all these early season yeah, exactly. errors, really. It's a, it's a bit confronting for a team that used to be so on top of it. But if we look more to the race itself, which Sebastian Vettel was able to win, perhaps despite the odds, as we'll see as we talk about the second stint. But one of the interesting things that I think, and this happens a couple of times every season, and maybe we all have to remind ourselves that there is a rule against it, but we saw Mercedes at that first pit stop window send their mechanics out into pit lane a couple of times. And Toto Wolff said after the race that they knew that Bottas was close to that undercut range where potentially he could have pit before Vettel and then kept that position once Vettel made his second stop using that fresh rubber advantage. He didn't do that. He used the one stop in the end. But is it is it a little bit silly that there is this rule against using mechanics to perhaps try and trick your opponents, but everyone seems to do it anyway? Well, I, I, the rule is odd. I agree with you. I mean, it why you sh- you can only come out into the I don't know who it ups who it's upsetting if you know you have a bit of bluffery in the pit lane I didn't think 
from what I saw, it didn't look like a bluff to me in that all the, um, like the front Jackman in particular, mm-hmm. he was hyped, ready for Bottas to come in. You could see him sort of shaking his jack around <laughs> and getting up on his toes and ready for Bottas to come in. They're all staring at pit entry. And when Bottas went past, they all sort of looked at each other like, oh, <laughs> oh, right, uh, right, okay. And, you know, it's to me, it seemed like they were genuinely ready to pit Bottas and whether them coming out forced Ferrari into coming into the pits and you know that was that was the reaction whether Mercedes gave the game away perhaps by coming out and showing their hand and Ferrari thought right well let's pit Vettel then in reaction to that I'm I'm not 100% sure but I don't think it was a bluff from Mercedes I, I think they were genuinely about to bring Bottas in ultimately and maybe that is the way he could have won the Grand Prix but if Vettel had pitted at the same time then you wouldn't have achieved anything and and you'd have been done for the rest of the race. And Bottas had a little bit of freedom to be able to play with a strategy like that because he didn't have Raikkonen ahead of him. Kimi Raikkonen, we talk every year about how this is a a good circuit for him, how he always seems to perform very well here. I think it was eight podiums and 11 finishes before this race. Uh, he he lost a position off the line and let Bottas get in front of him and wasn't able to apply that kind of pressure that you want from a rear gunner is the phrase we often use for Raikkonen, whether rightly or wrongly. If we talk about Raikkonen in particular, notwithstanding his retirement wasn't his fault, uh, as far as we know how that system works, was it a little bit disappointing that he wasn't able to play a bigger role at this race we always build up to be one of his better ones? I think he was, I, I think he was lurking. I, I felt like that was the crucial part of the Grand Prix as to who was going to win it because they pitted Raikkonen. Mm. They put him onto the um, super soft tyres, if I recall correctly, or tried to put him onto the super soft tyres anyway at, at, at his stop. And that, I, I think, would have forced Bottas into, into pitting at that point because mm-hmm. Raikkonen would have got the undercut on Bottas and you'd have had Ferrari first and second. Admittedly, Mercedes could have then still tried the one-stop strategy, but they'd have had two Ferraris to get past. So, to me, when if if they if Raikkonen's pit stop had gone okay, Mercedes would have had to react to that pretty swiftly mm-hmm. and brought Bottas in if they wanted to keep him ahead of Raikkonen because he would have been lapping quicker on the on the new tires and tried the undercut. So, I think that freedom came from Raikkonen's retirement to to my mind anyway i mean you mm-hmm. know what do i know i'm an idiot but that's 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 what it seemed to be playing out to me was that bottas would have had to reacted to raikkonen pitting but because raikkonen retired bottas was able to extend ex- extend his stint a little more and switch on to the to the one-stop strategy i think and so raikkonen yes of course it was a bit disappointing that he didn't have a little more pace because he was a bit far back from bottas to really try and you saw when it came towards the pit stop phase, Bottas closed the gap to Vettel mm. and Raikkonen was left sort of dilly-dallying around nowhere. But I think he was still close enough to affect the race and to force Bottas into a into another pit stop. And that's that was the key element in having the um uh in having the two Ferraris versus the one Mercedes in that fight. 
As a final note on that fight for second, although it didn't end up eventuating, as you note that Raikkonen couldn't complete that pit stop, a, a good round, I suppose, for both Finns. I mean, Raikkonen had a pretty good round in Australia, it has to be said as well. He's had a good start to the season, but Valtteri Bottas had a bit of an average Grand Prix in Australia uh, after being in qualifying, of course, and we know already that contract speculation talk is everywhere because they're both on the, the final years of their contracts. But a, a sort of good steadying showing at, at this point in the season, I suppose, particularly for Bottas who has been under the... He doesn't have, well, he doesn't have that reputation Raikkonen has, does he, to fall back on of, of being a world champion. So being under the thumb of Hamilton for all this time is doing him no favours. I don't entirely disagree, but... You can disagree, <laughs> no, no, please. No, I, 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 I agree with your sentiment, but at the same time, I think that any of the top drivers would have won that Grand Prix yesterday for Mercedes. I think Ricardo, Verstappen, Vettel... Um, Hamilton, Gasly, you know, uh-huh. any of them would have would have sent it up the inside at turn one on the final lap. And whether they'd... And that, for me, was a massive disappointment in Bottas because this is for a race victory. Mm-hmm. And not only did he not... He just, did, he just did neither, you know? He didn't lunge it up the inside, but at the same time... So you either have to lunge it up the inside which, fine, that could be a bit risky on the final lap, fine. In which case, you stay right behind Vettel and you get the best run out through turns one, two, three that you can and try and overtake into four if you're a little bit closer there because you've got so much more grip. You're going to be quicker through one, two, three. I think he gained half a second on Vettel just under braking for turn one on the previous lap. Mm-hmm. and um, But he did neither. He sort of showed his nose to the inside but didn't actually try and overtake. That meant Vettel was faster through those first few corners, and that was Bottas's only chance. And he just and he and he was half-hearted about it. And I think, without wanting to be too strong, <laughs> I think it demonstrated why Bottas won't. He's not going to be a world champion when uh-huh. you look at moments like that. To, to me, because the, honestly, any of the top you Ricardo would mm. have gone for that. And he, if he didn't make the move stick, he'd have gone in too hot, all locked up, and Vettel would have cut back underneath him, and Vettel would have won the Grand Prix, and he'd have finished in second still. But to not even... Uh, I don't know. Vettel, Vettel's not going to have a crash there, is he? Mm-hmm. Vettel's not going to see... All Vettel is doing on the final lap, going into the final overtaking zone on the track, all Vettel is doing is looking in his mirrors to mm-hmm. see what Bottas is going to do. They're not going to collide. Vettel is not going to turn in and cost himself 18 points in the championship fight just for having a bit of a bump with someone who's not going to be his title rival. So, I don't know. I was very disappointed with Bottas in in the end. I agree that he had good pace and he closed in and great, but when it comes to those decisive moments, uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know. I, I think, I think you've got to do better than that that's my little rant done <laughs> <laughs> well it is fair I mean and the, and the times back to Hamilton do back up that point of view I suppose because he started ninth Hamilton finished six seconds off the lead so let's say five seconds behind Valtteri Bottas and I, su- I suppose in that respect means he was closing in faster on Bottas than Bottas was on Vettel if that makes yeah. sense yeah. as a sentence so and considering they were on virtually identical strategies only a six lap difference in them uh, I, I guess that really does show that potentially you could make the argument that had Hamilton not had that gearbox change penalty, this really could have been his race. Well, I mean, and but equally, let's not forget, Bottas did out-qualify Hamilton and Hamilton mm-hmm. didn't look hooked up 
all weekend in all of that. And I'm not trying to be some British Hamilton <laughs> fanboy, but I think, but I think he is very good. Um, and I think you'll find it's difficult to find people who would say, "Oh no, he's not very good." Mm-hmm. Uh, but but be it Hamilton, like I say, be it um, Verstappen, be it Ricardo, be it Vettel, anyone would have would have lunged it, or at least tried to win the Grand Prix. I never felt like Bottas tried to win the Grand Prix on that final lap, and for me, that's disappointing. You know, Hamilton would have done everything he possibly could to have at least had an attack and it's easy for me to say that I'm you know I, I'm not a driver obviously but you know I have uh, on the BBC we have Jolian Palmer with us and and he said exactly the same and you can say you know maybe Jolian Palmer isn't world championship driver material and you know I don't necessarily disagree with that and I don't think he necessarily disagrees with that but you know he lunged Bottas up the inside into turn one in Singapore in the wet on a safety car restart mm-hmm. because he knew that that it was Bottas. And so you can, you know, he, he he's not, I mean, when I can't remember Bottas overtaking anyone ever <laughs> without being too, do you know what I mean? When, mm. when you think back, do you think, oh yeah, Bottas made that move? No, you think of, you think back to Brazil when he was on pole position and he sort of let Vettel go mm-hmm. past at the first corner off the line. You think back to Bahrain when he was on pole position, uh, Last year, you know, and uh, I can't quite remember what happened now I think about it. Did he get passed on the line? I can't remember. But, you know, you don't. Th- Bottas isn't an overtaker. Mm-hmm. And I think that showed, and I think that's why he's a... And so now Mercedes have the choice of whether they want to keep him as a solid number two. Um, and that's all he'll ever be. Or whether they want to put someone like, you know, Dan Ricciardo in the car who can maybe... Who has a bit of... Uh, life in him. Mm. It's a, oh, it is an interesting equation. Also, Esteban Ocon, I suppose, yeah, who exactly. recruited himself very well here, uh, is also not afraid to overtake his own teammate, even, <laughs> exactly. as we've learned from this. Exactly. <laughs> or at least, yeah, have a go at it in any case. Yeah. As I, I, potentially is an interesting theme over these past two races. We talk about having that killer instinct in these key moments. Uh, after the Australian Grand Prix, and there was, I suppose, the debacle, you could call it, where Lewis Hamilton was given the wrong time in terms of how far behind he had to be Sebastian Vettel to yeah. ensure... He had the correct gap behind a safety car and so on. Uh, and he, he said something to the effect that he really wished that there was more instinct in these kind of calls. And we saw a little bit in this race as well. You know, he had some radio problems. In the end, he was just going for it. He was pushing because there was nothing else really for him to do. Do you think that, that that's a kind of the difference there, that Hamilton isn't so willing to rely on, on numbers and information? He's a little bit more of an instinctive driver, the driver that would, on instinct, make those kind of lunges. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you think back to Melbourne... Uh, not only the the virtual safety car incident, but also in the closing stages, he was saying to the team, what am I doing? Can I push? Can I push? And the team were like, oh, <laughs> just looking at the data. We're just looking at the data. And then he and then he came over the road. I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said, you know. Yeah, I'm going for it. Uh, I'm going for yeah. it. Like, <laughs> like, just shut up, guys. I'm going to try and win the Grand Prix. And off he goes. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that is all... You know that, and, and I think you'd have had the same with again. I don't want to bang the same old drum, but that's what Verstappen would have done. That's what Ricardo would have done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'd have, they'd have, they'd have gone for it, and yeah, I think. And that's not to criticise Bottas and say he's not an instinctive driver, because obviously all drivers are instinctive to a to a greater or or lesser degree. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just that yeah that that killer instinct perhaps that that Bottas either doesn't have or hasn't you know maybe in his formula three days 
he was a different guy. But but running around, you know, easily outpacing Felipe Massa at Williams for a couple of years and never really fighting at the front, maybe that's taken the edge off it. I, I, I don't know. He's become domesticated, his instinct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, quite, yeah, exactly. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> He's been used to, you know, sleeping inside and not out in the wild. <laughs> As a final note on this uh, battle at the front, because I want to talk about Pierre Gasly. Um, Don't we all? I think this is probably a fitting result for Sebastian Vettel in his 200th race start. I mean, as much as there are all these permutations and we talk about who decided to put who on, on what strategy, um, to do a, a 39-lap stint on the soft tyres, and he said it after the race on, on team radio that those tyres were done. They were completely cooked at that point. Was a really, even if it was only Bottas, we've said all that already, but it was a, was a really impressive oh, yeah. defensive drive. And he's had a couple of them in his history. Yeah, it was a really, really good drive from Vettel, and actually one of the one of the best that I can think of off the mm. off the top of my head, quite frankly, um, because Pirelli estimated I think those soft tires to last about thirty laps. And okay, you know they come up, it comes up or down depending on your fuel load and all of that kind of stuff, admittedly, and whether you're following a car in front or whether you've got clear air, which obviously Vettel did for most of the time. But his, his last lap was something like two and a half seconds slower than his best lap of the race, which Mm. would have presumably come when he first put those soft tyres on. So he was two and a half seconds slower than he was at the start of his stint come the end, despite a lighter fuel load. So I think he did magnificently to to make those soft tyres work because we didn't know whether he was going to stop again. Mm -hmm. Mercedes didn't know whether he was going to stop again. You can't help but think Ferrari didn't know <laughs> whether he was going to stop again. They would have had a pinch point in their, you know, in their calculations that with X amount of laps to go, the, a new set of super softs will give you X amount of lap time and will be 23 seconds behind Bottas. You know, that they would have had that calculation. So they, I'm sure there would have become a point of no return. But even, you know, that's the frustration I think for... Mercedes probably in this as well because they most likely thought he had to stop again they were certainly saying to Hamilton mm-hmm. Vettel will come out behind you when he stops again and uh, then they were like oh <laughs> <laughs> hang on maybe he isn't going to stop again so I think he did a tremendous job to do 39 laps on those on those soft tires really impressive stuff the kind of stuff you you know you you always used to celebrate we always used to celebrate Sergio Perez for doing that didn't we and he'd start in 14th and finish in 8th and he'd do 100 laps on the ultra softs or something like that and (laughs) I think it but it's very different to do that when you're when you're leading the Grand Prix and to win the first two races of the season is uh, a magnificent achievement for Vettel especially considering I'm not convinced the car is the fastest car out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, scoring points when he has the opportunity to, yeah. perhaps not with the machinery. Could be key by the time we get to the end of the season. Uh, now, Pierre Gasly, he was well, he was voted the driver of the day, I think, wasn't he, uh, via the F1 website? And probably rightfully so, unlike those ones occasionally where all of the Dutch people get on and vote Max Verstappen <laughs> the driver of the day, even though he's retired, which I think happened once. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Uh, it, what's almost remarkable about this result is that strategic-wise, uh, it was a it was a two-stop race, super soft, soft, super soft, in roughly the right windows calculated by Pirelli. There was nothing particularly adventurous about this strategy, but for the entire race, driver and car just had the pace to be what ended up being fourth place or, or fastest of all the cars bar the front runners, which is, I mean, who would have ever have considered this even after last week in Melbourne? Yeah. I, I- it came out of nowhere, and I, I mean, I, 
I wouldn't actually give Gasly driver of the day because he did a very good, he did did a good job, but it wasn't, it didn't stand out Mm. in a way because that's where he qualified (laughs) and that's where he finished. And that's obviously a stupid thing to say because it was a magnificent achievement by Toro Rosso and a wonderful performance from Gasly and Brendan Hartley sort of struggled a little bit again. Um, But we were seeing the times coming in in free practice and going, it looks as though Toro Rosso might be best of the rest here, but that can't be true. They must have their engine, the Honda engine turned up, you know, or something. And so we asked Honda after practice, were you in a special engine mode? They were like, no, we're in our normal free practice engine mode. They didn't run a qualifying run or, or anything like that. And, and yeah, and it was and it was fairly plain sailing for um, Gasly. I think there was one point when he made his second pit stop that he was only a second or two, I think, ahead of Kevin Magnussen. Mm-hmm. And um, so that got a bit close. But again, that was just sort of perfectly timed pit stop work, really, because then he was on the new super soft tyres and, and he pulled away quite comfortably. So uh, it will be fascinating to see whether Toro Rosso can continue this kind of form for the remainder of the season or not, and uh, and what Gasly can do. Because he didn't even have to fight anyone mm. for it, really. He even got... I think he got past Dan, Daniel Ricciardo on the start, and then yeah. Ricciardo got back past him. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great drive from him. My driver of the day was Marcus Ericsson. Though. Yes, we will get to Marcus Ericsson momentarily. No, I'm sure yes. we will. I'm sure oh. we will. I just said... I think I... Because I clarified Gasly wasn't <laughs> yeah. my driver of the day, so I thought I'd better mention who was. Well, we know it wasn't Bottas, so at least we will <laughs> narrow it down as we get there. It was... I mean, it's, it's almost frustrating, isn't it? Because we've... I know it's only round two. Of course, this is naturally the case when we're so early in the season, but... We still can't figure out exactly what that order, like you say, in Australia, Toro Rosso, you would never have guessed that two weeks later they would have been able to be best of the rest. Haas was, I suppose, roughly where we expected after Australia, or that showed at least that it wasn't just that uh, impressive first round they've put in the last couple of years, so Kevin Magnussen finished behind him. But, I mean, if this is realistically the order going forward for the rest of the season, what does that say about, okay, I'm going to say Renault, but of course I'm going to say McLaren Renault because we know what did he cheekily say Gasly uh, after the the checkered flag now we can exactly, fight yes exactly you, exactly the words Alonso said in Australia yeah. so I mean they're all very aware of, of the political nature of this fight as well I suppose McLaren was an odd one this weekend because they qualifying that they were the third slowest car because mm. you had the two Williams and the two Saubers at the back you had and then you had I think Grosjean in there um, and Hartley I think they were in between the Saubers and the Williams and the two McLarens. But the teammate cars to those two were way up the front mm-hmm. end of the midfield. So in qualifying, McLaren had the third slowest car. And I mean, that was that's just a, a, an abomination after all the complaints <laughs> over the last couple of years. In the race, to be fair, they did a very good job. Alonso came in quite early and went onto the mediums, I think. Mm-hmm. And Van Dorn got a bad start and was last. I think I, think I read earlier he overtook 11 cars yeah, yeah. on the track in his climb back up to, was he 8th or ninth? I can't he remember. finished 8th. Eighth. Eighth. So it was 7th and 8th for Alonso and Van Dorn. So Van Dorn actually did a very good job. So they were a strange one this weekend because they, they totally lucked into that 5th place in Melbourne <laughs> in the, in, under the virtual safety car in the same way it affected them, the same way it affected Vettel. Then suddenly they look really slow here and Alonso saying, oh yeah, we always knew we'd struggle here. It's like, well, I thought... Melbourne was going to be your lowest point of the season. That's what you said before Melbourne. And then all of a sudden, they're actually all right and finish ahead of the Force Indias and 
some of the Renaults come the race. So, But again, if you add in those three retirements, and I know Formula One doesn't work like this, but if you mm. add in the, um, the, the two Red Bulls and the Ferrari, suddenly their seventh and eighth becomes 10th and 11th, and they've picked up one point, and they've finished behind a Toro Rosso, a Haas, and a Renault, then actually it isn't super impressive from McLaren, considering I, I actually, as a bit of a joke, but also kind of serious, put uh, Ad Alonso as my champion pick for the season. Because there was ah. all, well, only because they brought it on themselves, McLaren, because they say we have the best car ever. Mm. You've never seen a car as good. Then, <laughs> And if you think by default that Red Bull can be in the title hunt, then if McLaren have the same power unit as a Red Bull and they've got the best car ever, then... Mm-hmm. They should be competitive and you put Alonso in a competitive car and he's going to run for the title. So, you know, that was the kind of where people were thinking, but all, but it's a very, very different story. And being slower than a Toro Rosso Honda all weekend is just, oh, I don't want to say embarrassing, but I think that's what it is. I think that's what it is. Yeah, go on, say it. Embarrassing. Say it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially, you know, chief shareholders of the company oh, from Bahrain. Yeah. It was an embarrassing time to do it Absolutely. at a minimum. Uh, I mean, how much of that, I mean, there's already talk that, you know, if, if this continues and yes, I mean, they're scoring points each race, but if this sort of form continues that there will naturally be pressure on the performance directors, Eric Bouillet and even Zach Brown, but how much of that will just be really, as you say, kind of their own fault for saying in the preseason, I mean, what was Zach Brown saying at the end of last year? We're giggling with excitement yeah. at how good this season's going to be. Yeah, exactly. They, uh, in their attempts to deflect the, you know, the blame onto, um, onto Honda, you know, they, they, you know, they made a rod for their own back, really. And, and there's no doubt that the Honda was rubbish, you know, for three years. No one's, no mm-hmm. one's coming out and saying, oh, look, actually, the Honda engine was great. You know, it looks as though maybe they've got their act together now, but you can't pretend it wasn't rubbish mm-hmm. for those three years that they were <laughs> together. But you don't, you know, to build yourself up like that. And, you know, Zach Brown's a commercial guy, you know, and so maybe he was sort of kind of trying to sell the team as we're going to be this. But you've got to be careful what you sell, I suppose. Looking behind the McLarens, this was, you said, your driver of the day. It's uh, it's easy to make that argument, I suppose. I don't think there'll be too many people that disagree that certainly belongs there. Marcus Ericsson finished ninth, his first point since 2015, the first points for Sauber of the year, and almost in an entire year. Azerbaijan, I think, was their last points last year. Uh, as of conventional, again, a, a one-stop strategy, pretty much bang on where Pirelli expected them to be, a, a, a switch from the soft to the mediums on lap 23. But an impressive drive for him in a season that I suppose a lot of people had kind of written him off in, considering he's paired with Charles Leclerc, you know, the next the next big guy. Uh, and he's really, again, in only the first two, two races, but he's really, I suppose, shown him up. He's shown him whose turf this is. Well, I... So, well... A lot of comments on this. Firstly, um, <laughs> uh, you'll be shocked to learn. Firstly, uh, the, the Sauber is the slowest car on the grid. I think there's no doubt about that. The Williams look slow, but it's mm. got two drivers that, what is the point of turning up? Okay. You know? right. um, <laughs> so I believe the Sauber is the slowest car there. Not by, not by far, though, admittedly. They've closed in a lot over compared to where they were last year with that year-old Ferrari engine and all that nonsense. Um, Ericsson, I think, I've always seen him as a pay driver. 
That's that's how, always how I've seen him. And I think back to his first year in Caterham or something, and he mm. uh, didn't do a very good job. He was up against Kamui Kobayashi, who obviously was pretty experienced and that sort of thing. So he, that just sort of cemented the pay driver role in my mind. And then he's paired at Sauber with Felipe Nazar, who's British F3 champion, was a competitor in GP2, you know, for titles and race wins and stuff. And he kind of saw him off to a to a reasonable extent in that Nazar's career didn't go any mm. further. He was Williams' young driver for a bit, Nazar, but after a year at Sauber with Ericsson, it was like, oh, well, he can't even beat Ericsson convincingly. Mm. So no one really hired him, and that was the end of his career. And then he was up against um, uh, Pascal Verlein, you know, DTM champion, Mercedes young driver. Mm. If Verlein has a good season there, he, he's he got a shot at Bottas's seat. Well, he had a shot at Rosberg's seat when Rosberg retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was in that sort of conversation. But after a year up against Ericsson, oh, he didn't even really manage to, you know, show up Ericsson. They were pretty even, I think, and Ericsson out-qualified him a bit. And so you go, oh, suddenly Pascal Verlein's Formula One career is effectively over because no one's going to hire him because... He kind of didn't really even beat Marcus Ericsson. And now here comes Charles Leclerc, who everyone's on the hype train about. And I think Leclerc ultimately, I believe, will be a bit better than Ericsson. But Ericsson's doing a decent job. So I, I think I might have misjudged Ericsson over the past years. <laughs> and that actually he's quite good. And then this drive yesterday was, was, was really, really good. The fact Because he needed to have that pace on the mediums to be far enough in front when everyone else made their second stop. And, uh, and be able to hold on. And to be able to hold on and grab some points was, was great. And yes, okay, you had those three retirements. So that would have, you know, ultimately knocked him down to a 12th place finish. But still, if if you're finishing 12th when you've started, I can't remember, he started 19th or something like mm-hmm. that. And, uh, you know, that's a very impressive drive. I thought, so, I, yeah, I thought he was great. And not only my driver of the day, but my sort of... I had an epiphany. <laughs> I had a Marcus Ericsson epiphany. <laughs> and uh, and ap- apparently he's crazy as well. We asked Jolian Palmer, who's the best driver to go out with on the grid? Mm-hmm. You know, who's like the craziest? And I'm expecting him to say, oh, Kimi or, you know, Ricardo or someone like that. He goes, oh, Marcus Ericsson is <laughs> off the chain. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I think I might be becoming Marcus Ericsson's <laughs> biggest fan now after. I think, I think now he's my, he would have overtaken Vettel. He'd have put the move on Vettel. Marcus Ericsson would have. <laughs> it's it sort of weirdly lines up. I've got this friend who always goes to after parties in Melbourne. He always brings back a photo with Marcus Ericsson. Really? I've always been like, what parties are you going to? But the best ones I guess he's now. going to the good ones. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll have to follow him next year. I don't know. It's it, it's If that's how he is out of the car, inside the car, I suppose, he gives off a very controlled persona, yeah. doesn't he? He's very... It's always very in control of his his personality in the in the Formula One paddock, and I suppose one of the one of the things that maybe some people who are watching Formula One might find um, maybe distasteful is the word. But when drivers let other drivers buy because they're in the faster cars, and we saw him do that to the McLarens, and also I think it was Nico Hulkenberg. But that really is kind of the secret to how he can make that one stop last, isn't it? Because he's using his tyres only when he actually needs to to extend those stints, and and that's what brought home those two points. Yeah, exactly, and it, it was like when um did Hamilton overtake Gasly I think and Gasly just sort of didn't even 
bother mm. trying to defend yes. because you know you're not racing. You can you can go to the inside and lock up and <laughs> try and hold on for one corner, but you know that with 30 laps to go, Hamilton will finish in front of you because those are just the facts. In Monaco or something, maybe it's maybe it's different, or even in Melbourne, but. Bahrain you can get past and so uh, you know that's how you have to run the race and yeah Ericsson got his head down and concentrated on his own Grand Prix and didn't get distracted by anything else that was going on and and yeah rightly got points and I think he like you say it was his first point since 2015 in Melbourne which I think is his only points finish to date and I think that was the Grand Prix where like no one started the race, let alone finished the race. Did you? And I yeah. think Nasa finished fifth or something, didn't he? On his mm. on his debut for for Sauber, and Ericsson was eighth or something along those lines because Bottas didn't take the start because he'd hurt his hand or something, and it was uh, all back, you know. It was it was, yeah. that, it was a very weird yeah his back. It was a very weird start to the season, mm-hmm. and uh, so these are his first. I'd say this is his first almost real points. <laughs> A good race for him. And finally, the final points-paying position went to Esteban Ocon. Maybe a little bit unexpected for Force India, who had a bit of a mixed start to the season. Uh, he used all three tyres, the super soft, the medium and the soft, to get to the end in a two-stop strategy. I suppose important for them at what's been a, a more difficult start to a season than they've had in, in recent times. They've always been kind of confidently in that top 10 mix. Well, they've a lot of it has come from other teams being rubbish <laughs> uh, in the, you know, Red Bull... And Renault, you know, having some struggles in the early times. And then uh, Renault, the Renault-Lotus whole catastrophe <laughs> and McLaren-Honda disaster and Toro Rosso uh, having, you know, not a good run and Sauber on year-old Ferrari. You know what I mean? They've mm-hmm. taken advantage of all of that and Williams being Williams and have done a good job. Whereas now, actually, I mean, this is the most competitive midfield that I can remember so now to be up against a fully on form Haas team a McLaren that are sort of sorted out a little bit uh uh who else have you got in there Renault now coming back as a as a force with um you know with a proper manufacturer entrant and 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 that suddenly force India they're almost kind of settling into the place where actually you'd put a relatively low budget independent team based out of Northampton Mm -hmm. You know that's kind of where you'd expect them to be. You, they've they've been over delivering for these last three four years, and now everyone else has sort of caught up. And now they're kind of where you'd expect them to be, battling for the odd points finish. You know their their budget can't be too much different to a to a. Well, we know that it's pretty similar to Williams, mm-hmm. and yet last year, I think any one either Perez or Ocon's points was more than the Williams points yeah. put together, mm-hmm. you know? And and I, th- I mean, for me, I actually think certainly the start of the season, Williams had the faster car last year, but let's not even <laughs> start to get bogged down in Williams because, I mean, what a ridiculous scenario. But, um, yeah, so Force India now are almost where they should be, you know? They're going to try and grab the odd points here and there and battling over sort of sixth and seventh in the Constructors' Championship. None of this fourth-place nonsense <laughs> that they've been doing for the last couple of years. Like, astonishingly, I think this is, you know, they're almost going to settle back into where they are now. I was going to call it there. Uh, I'm conscious that we've gone over time, but I've been sensing this underlying feelings about Williams in this race. Now, I want oh, to touch on that. I they finished, you know, they scored no points. 
what's they've, they've had a ter- it was a terrible one of the worst races since well certainly in this hybrid era for Williams what's what's your feeling on this one what's your take on what's going on at Williams in each season they expected to be able to try and have another crack at wherever Force India was going to be if that was fourth or not and and they're nowhere near that I don't know how you can expect to be a good Grand Prix team if you don't sign good drivers and right so for a start I've nothing against I had nothing against Lance Stroll coming into F1 because he he'd won the European Formula 3 championship yes team orders mm-hmm. and his dad had paid a load of money you know <laughs> blah 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 I, I get that but you can't win European mm-hmm. Formula 3 without having some driving ability mm-hmm. right that's you know you just can't and he was up against Massa and he sort of got better towards the middle of the season had some standouts like second on the grid in Monza mm-hmm. in the rain Actually, that was really damn impressive. But to then bring in Sergei Sorokin alongside him, who uh, it, see, is a decent driver. Again, don't get me wrong. He's a decent driver. Did well enough in GP2. Never, never won the thing, but I think he finished third on two occasions or something like that. So he's a fine driver, but Stroll's still effectively a rookie. To put a rookie alongside him... And then think, and 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 and, and, and Robert Kubica is the third driver because he's bringing some money as well, so he can just sort of stand around in the garage and look important. When it when Renault tested him last year and decided he wasn't fast enough for a race seat, Williams tested him, and you know Renault found that Jolyon Palmer was still quicker than Kubica, so he got the flick. Williams have obviously found that Sorokin's still quicker than Kubica, but they'll still keep Kubica lurking around to take some of his money. I mean. It's just not the way to... And that stat summed it up for me that either one of the Force India drivers beat Williams in the championship last year. And that's because Force India hired Sergio Perez, who I think is a little underrated. Mm. You think back to some of his Sauber drives when he nearly won that race Mm. in Malaysia when he was closing in on Alonso in what... I don't know when that would have been. 2013, 2012, Mm. something like that. You know, Perez is a good peddler, experienced driver. Esteban Ocon, who's a legitimate... Mercedes young driver up and coming uh, megastar almost I think Ocon I think he's going to be very good and then Williams just goofing around <laughs> with with two meh drivers like what are they expecting to happen what are you expecting to happen if you hire n- drivers that aren't good enough I don't know and and what, what what are they trying to achieve because they're not trying to achieve results on the track they're trying to achieve obviously getting load of money but if you're getting a load of money, then what good is it if you if you can't do anything on the track? Because that's the whole point. You're here. You're not here to. You're not. You're. You don't run a Formula One team to make a profit mm-hmm. and to make money and to become rich. You know that's that's not the purpose you're here. And I get why you'd have to take. You know, if you look at Sauber, you keep Ericsson on board because he brings you some money, and then you hire Leclerc because you get him free from Ferrari and, you know, all that kind of thing. But he's an exciting talent and he'll get you the points. Obviously, as we've discussed, Ericsson's all right. And uh, But if you're doing neither of those things, you're just getting a load of money and it means you're happy to hang around at the back of the grid with some unexperienced drivers, but take all the money and go home every weekend. I mean, what? that's not a racing team. That's just a... That's just a nonsense anyway that's my those are my thoughts i don't know i don't know i mean i'm not and i'm not meaning to knock stroll or sirotkin because they're both competent but but you can't lead a team you can't drive a team forward with with those two as your as your drivers in their 
in their basically their debut seasons in Formula One. It's just crazy. Mm, I think I've I've left the iron on, or it's getting hot in here. Yeah, I don't know, one I way know, or another. But um, <laughs> but nonetheless, that's the what's what happened in the race. We've got to dissect it. It's what we have to do. Yeah, it was an interesting race. Uh, maybe not for Williams. It was interesting for everybody else. I think <laughs> yeah, uh, and a good second round for the 2018 season. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Jack Nichols, BBC F1 commentator and chief of the Marcus Ericsson <laughs> That was Jack Nichols, F1 commentator for the BBC. The F1 Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Make sure you get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review to help other F1 fans find the show. You can also read the written report at f1strategyreport.com and stay up to date by finding us on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Michael Amanato. You can find me at Michael Amanato on Twitter, and I'll catch you next week for a wrap-up of the Chinese Grand Prix.